Hi, everyone, and welcome to Murder and Merlot. We're a true crime book club podcast. I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Michelle. How's it going, Michelle? It's going good. Good. Are you excited about today's episode? I am. It's, uh, it's been a, it's been a go to, to write this one, but, uh, mm-hmm. I think by the end of this, we'll all know a little bit more about H.H. Holmes. Yes, I hope so, because not going to lie, I still don't know a lot about H.H. Holmes. <laughs> kind of and uh, yeah, we're going to save our book discussion until the end of the episode this week, just so that we can talk about the case and then yes. talk about our feels about the devil in the white city. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like when we talk about the book beforehand, we kind of have to hold back a little bit because we don't want to give away any spoilers. So we're going to change it up a little bit and save that to the very end. So we'll talk about the case first and then the book mm-hmm. discussion afterwards. Yes. Any current events? No, not really. I've had a pretty much- crazy couple yeah. of days. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, for example, I had a random person show up at my house in the middle of nowhere today um, and got a very unsettling vibe from them had my husband come help them and uh by the end we reported them to the cops because it was not a great interaction they called yeah. me back and they're like i don't want to alarm you but um they sprayed somebody with bear mace and that is a stolen vehicle so thank you for reporting them <laughs> i was like oh shit that's not cool yeah well I, you trusted your gut though so yeah, I was like, yeah, no, you're not coming in my house. If you could just go wait in your vehicle, that would be great. So Yeah. So yeah. that was some excitement for a Sunday afternoon, that's for sure. Yeah, and like you live in the middle of nowhere, so it's very strange yeah. for random people just to show up in your yard. So. Absolutely, and they had no idea where they were, what towns were nearby, or anything like that. So I was like, yeah, this is not okay. <laughs> not normal yeah so i don't know how well i'll sleep tonight but do i ever sleep anyways not really <laughs> no no at least wiley's home yeah exactly yep and, and hank's there hank's yes hank did bark at them and that's what alerted me that there were people there is because at least i have a very good guard dog which i'm very thankful yeah. for <laughs> and he's the cutest guard dog as well so. oh He's absolutely the best, but he can be scary too. So it's perfect. Yeah, it's good. It balances <laughs> yeah. out. Sure does. Yeah. Let's uh, chat about our previous episode for a minute. It was yes. a little, little bit different, I think, than other episodes. Um, I think it was, yeah. it was very good, but uh, a little unsettling as well for some people. <laughs> yes. If you don't remember, that was Omaima Nelson, the um, model turned to murder. <laughs> Possibly yep. cannibal. We're not sure. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I got the best text from my mom because she was just like, "Just finished your podcast." Ew. <laughs> I was like, "She's like, but guess what I'm having for supper?" And I'm like, "Oh, mom, please tell me it's barbecue ribs, but as long as it's not dad's ribs." <laughs> and she's like, "No, pierogies and sausage, your favorite food." <laughs> like, That's much better than. I don't know if you would be able to eat your ribs after listening to that episode. Yeah. (laughs) Might, uh, yeah, put those off for a while. Yeah. (laughs) I love that response. That was the best. I know. She's just like, ew, ew, ew. (laughs) I know. And we've been (laughs) talking about like, oh, your mom's not going to like this episode. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. I love it. I was like, did just bugging her. Have you listened? Have you listened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling my dad about it as well. Cause he found out about the podcast and I was like, Ooh, in the last episode, it was really interesting. We talked about a cannibal <laughs> and then I just went on and on. It was probably like, Oh dear Lord. That's this right. is my little girl talking <laughs> yeah. about a woman eating people. Yep. That's right. <laughs> I love it. That was good fun. Yes. We had some really good fluff and stuff responses as well. Mm-hmm. Our question was, what food could you eat for the rest of your life? And on Facebook, Ashley said fries and gravy. And since she said that, all I want is fries and gravy. Actually, all I want is poutine. But yeah, yeah. Thanks for I, that. <laughs> can't even believe that we didn't put that on as our favorite food. Yeah. You may not know this about me, but I'm obsessed with poutine. I had a poutine bar at my wedding for the midnight snack and everything. Like I had to swear off of it for an entire month at one point because I was eating it almost every day. And I was, I literally, 
I had to talk to myself and I was like, this is a problem. You cannot keep eating poutine every day. So I went off of it for a whole month and it actually really helped. Then it, my cravings were not so bad. <laughs> yeah. That at first though, it was not good. You no. were like, I need it. I but need it. It was so bad that, and I have absolutely no self-control. So if I, if the thought even popped into my head, I couldn't stop myself. Like one time I was at lunch, I had my own lunch, I ate it. And the next thing I knew, I was in McDonald's drive-thru ordering poutine. And I'm not even kidding when I say, I don't remember making that decision or driving there. I just came to <laughs> while I was in the McDonald's drive-thru. And I was like, this is so bad, but I'm here. So of course I'm going to, of course, I'm going to get some poutine. Right. Might as well follow through. And I'm sure you and I are both going to eat it tomorrow. I have a feeling. <laughs> uh, yeah, probably. It's in my head. Probably. Now yeah. I, mm -hmm. I won't be able to stop myself. So thanks for that, Ashley. I blame you. Yes, me too. <laughs> and on Instagram, we had a good response from Harm City Daily, which of course is our podcast friend. And he said, well, a lethal dose of anything is technically a lifetime supply. And I really liked that. And I could really go I laughed out loud. <laughs> no I could really go for a lethal dose of poutine right now, let's be honest. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that great responses. Thanks, everybody, for uh, commenting. We appreciate it, as always. Yes. Yeah. Are we ready? I think we're ready. Uh, let's, okay. let's do this. All right, friends. Grab your glass and get cozy. Let's book club it up. Ding, ding. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking today? Anything more exciting than water? Uh, uh, yeah, it's a white claw in a wine glass. Damn, you off those antibiotics? <laughs> I am. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking a white Russian today because, no, it feels old timey. Feels fancy. Yeah, it feels fancy yeah. and old timey. And that's how I feel like this book is supposed to be. So, yes, it is very much so. Yes. So today we're covering, like we said before, Devil in the White City by Eric Larson. And from ericlarsonbooks.com, Eric Larson is the author of six New York Times bestsellers, including Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania, which hit number one on the Times list soon after launch, and his newest book, The Splendid and the Vile, a saga of Churchill, family, and defiance during the Blitz. The latter is in large part of a domestic drama that examines how Winston Churchill and his secret circle really went about surviving the German air campaign of 1940 to 1941. Eric's The Devil in the White City is set to be a Hulu limited series. His In the Garden of Beasts is under option by Tom Hanks for a future film. Eric lives in Manhattan with his wife, who is a writer and retired neonatologist, and they have three grown daughters. Thanks, Tara. This book was a bit of a challenge for us. Uh, it's full of information, but not necessarily information that was relative to, the case, relative to the case. Sorry, It tells two stories at the same time. First, it tells of the 1893 World's Fair, its inception, its construction and design, an incredible spectacle that was the White City, which is what the fair was dubbed. The second story is that of Herman Webster Mudgett, who is more commonly known as H.H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. I just want There's, to say, I can see why he, he does not go by Herman Webster Mudgett. Like, that name. <laughs> Every single time I read it, I was like, yeah, I would have changed my name to you. Yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Herman Mudgett. Like, this guy who's, like, shady and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> thinks he's all fancy and shit. You can't be named Herman Mudgett. In and Holmes, I think, blends in better than... Does. And I like Holmes. Yes, much more fancy. Right? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> I love the accent. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't know why. I just, I don't know. I feel like there should be a British accent, but this is in Chicago. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, funny that you say that because when I first started reading the book, I could not get a British accent out of my head. Like right? the first 10 chapters, I read it with a British accent and it was like Chicago. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. <laughs> I know. It's weird. <laughs> Uh, anyways, um, there's so much detail in this book, and it really paints a picture of what 1890s America looked like. Big things happened because of this fair. The first Ferris wheel was created. The Pledge of Allegiance was created. Wild Bill's Wild West show with Annie Oakley were featured at the fair, as well as much, much more. The architects and designers that created the fair dealt with a host of struggles and setbacks, including deaths of colleagues and wives, storms and destruction, 
but they were able to pull off the greatest show that America had seen up until this point. But for the sake of the true crime aspect of our book club, from here on out, we're going to just focus on H.H. Holmes. Sounds good to me. All right. So Herman Webster Mudgett was born on May 16th, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, to a wealthy family. He was very intelligent, even at a young age, and he expressed an interest in medicine. He practiced surgery on animals and had a friend who accidentally died. And it was assumed that Mudgett was actually responsible for his friend's death. He started his life of crime as a scam artist while he was a medical student at the University of Michigan. He would steal corpses and use them to make false insurance claims. He may have even used the bodies for experiments as well. In 1886, now a pharmacist, he had changed his name to Dr. Henry Howard Holmes and ventured to Chicago. He went to Inglewood, a community near Jackson Park, the future site of the World's Fair, and entered the pharmacy E.S. Holton Drugs and learns that Mr. Holton's health is failing and his wife was looking after the store. Holmes then convinced Mrs. Holton to hire him so she could better tend to her husband. After Mr. Holton passed away, H.H. Holmes purchased the pharmacy from Mrs. Holton while still allowing her to live in the apartment above the store. It wasn't too long after Holmes took over that Mrs. Holton was never seen again. And when people inquired as to her whereabouts, Holmes told them that she was visiting out-of-state relatives. Holmes's business was flourishing, and he was courting a woman named Murda in Minneapolis. So he spent a fair amount of time traveling back and forth until he proposed and they're married. Murda moved to Chicago and at first falls in love with the city and her new husband. But Holmes was a handsome man and he was always catching the eye of his female customers and being showered by affection from them. Murda did not like it. <laughs> she became very jealous, depressed and withdrawn. And in 1988, her parents, no, that can't be right. <laughs> 1898. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe. Yep. <clears throat> I wrote 1988, but it's definitely not the right year. No. So I'm just, yeah. Eventually, her parents <laughs> moved from Minneapolis to Wilmette, Illinois, and a pregnant Murda moved in with them. She soon brings Holmes's daughter, Lucy, into the world. Holmes would visit his wife and daughter occasionally. He claimed he was really busy with work, or he would come more often. Meanwhile, Holmes had purchased the land across the street from the drugstore and started plans to build an elaborate building that would house his pharmacy and other businesses on the first floor, with the upper two floors left for his living space and apartments for rent. He also included in his plans an airtight vault equipped with a gas valve, a chute from the upper floors to the basement, and sub-compartments below the basement. Not shady at all. No, yeah, that's totally casual. Totally casual, it's fine. <laughs> Totally what I'm going to do when I'm going to build my house. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes designed the building himself and contracted out the construction workers, frequently firing them or forcing them to quit to keep the true nature of the building quiet. Holmes did create a few friendships with some of these workers, one of them being Benjamin Pietzel, an alcoholic married father of five. Pietzel quickly became Holmes's guy. He was the only consistent worker throughout the construction, and he did what he was asked and he didn't ask any questions. The building, which was later dubbed the Murder Castle, was completed in 1890. Holmes then filled the first floor with fraudulent businesses with fake owners, all aliases of him, to dodge debt collectors. He was a smooth talker and was able to talk his way out of all sorts of snares. He was so charming that he was able to get creditors that he already owed money to, to keep extending him credit and letting his debts that he never intended to pay build up even more. In 1891, Holmes started renovating his building to turn it into a hotel for the World's Fair, which would be opening in 1893. He again used multiple work crews for the renovations and added a giant kiln in the basement of the hotel, saying it was needed for his glass-bending business. All the while, racking up debts all over Chicago. He convinced Murda's great-uncle Belknap to loan him $2,500 so he could build a house for him, Murda, and Lucy. And then... He immediately went and forged Belknap's signature for a loan for another $2,500. I wish I could build a house for $2,500, just saying. Right? That would be so <laughs> nice. Damn. Uh, Belknap did not trust Holmes from the get-go, but at his insistence, Belknap came to see the hotel and spend the night. In the middle of the night, someone tried to get into his room, and he stayed awake all night in fear of his life. 
Soon after his visit to the Hotel of Horrors, Belknap had discovered Holmes's forgery. He then approached Holmes, who was so charming he actually got Belknap to forgive him and leave on good terms. Holmes had hired a man named Ned Connor to run the jewelry counter in the pharmacy. Ned, his wife, Julia, and their daughter, Pearl, moved into one of the Murder Castle apartments. Holmes's affections towards Julia were very obvious, and Ned was very jealous of his employer, but overall liked him. He even helped him to test the soundproofing of his vault. But poor Ned was naive and had no idea about Holmes's nefarious intentions. Chicago at the time was prime real estate for a dude like Holmes. The city would swallow people up and they would just disappear. Ned starts to suspect that Holmes and Julia were having an affair. But when Holmes offers him a raise in order for him to buy the pharmacy, Ned accepts. As soon as the ink is dry on the transfer of ownership, creditors start knocking on Ned's door, seeking payment for Holmes's outstanding debts. Ned and Julia's relationship is on the rocks, and Ned, tired of it all, gives up on the business and his marriage and moves out. The couple divorce, and Julia is given full custody of Pearl. Christmas season of 1891, Julia tells Holmes that she is pregnant with his baby. Holmes is not happy about this, but he tells Julia he will marry her with the condition that he give her an abortion. She agrees, and they plan the abortion for Christmas Eve. Julia visit, visited her neighbors during the day, and they set up a surprise Christmas tree for Pearl. Then that night, Holmes took her to one of the secret rooms in the hotel that was set up with a medical table and tools. Keep in mind that Holmes was a pharmacist and not actually a medical doctor. Okay, I was going to ask that because I just felt like I was getting conflicting things. Like, he's a doctor, he went to school, like a, some surgical school, but he didn't actually practice medicine. I was very confused. He's a pharmacist, not okay. actually a medical doctor. Okay. But he liked to think of himself as a doctor, medical oh, I, doctor, I, I, surgeon. Doesn't, doesn't surprise me. Right. <laughs> Julia was never seen again, and neither is Pearl. It's unclear his actual method of murder in these cases, but it is, it is known that he used chloroform on both, and even though he'd built the kiln for easy disposal of bodies, he paid someone to strip her body of flesh and then sold her body to a medical school in Chicago. As he knew at the time, schools needed skeletons, and they didn't investigate where their suppliers got them. Holmes said, sent his friend Benjamin Pietzel to rehab to treat his alcoholism because it was interfering with his work. Um, but more likely because Holmes was going to open his own treatment facility in his building. While in treatment, Pietzel met a beautiful blonde woman, Miss Emmeline Sigrand, and Holmes, after hearing of her beauty, pursued her and offered her a job. She accepted the job, and her and Holmes quickly became an item. Holmes was still being a creepy creep and hitting on the ladies that came in, into the store, and Emmeline even had a warning visit from Ned Connor. Ned, who got some of Holmes's debt dumped on him, who had his wife stolen, and then her and their daughter mur murdered by Holmes. But Emmeline, Emmeline was infatuated and did not listen to the warnings. Soon, Holmes proposed to Emmeline. Remember, that is now one wife and daughter still alive, one dead fiancé and stepdaughter, and now a third fiancé. He's busy. He must be so smooth. Like, clearly, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't get it. It's just like, <laughs> is just basically any woman that he chooses. It seemed like it was just like, yeah, I like her. That's going to be my wife. And I'll take, that's what happened. I'll take you. Yeah. yeah. Emmeline goes missing in the winter of 1892. Holmes told her friends that she had run off to get married. Her friends found this suspicious, but never reported her missing to the authorities. If they had, maybe they would have learned that Holmes had de-skinned her top half put her remains in a trunk, and got some residents of the building to help him move her out so she could be turned into a skeleton for this medical school as well. Just, just the top half? That's just the top half. And okay. I don't understand why. Okay. Uh, maybe he just liked the skin on her bottom half. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Julia and Emmeline's families are concerned and start to look into their disappearances. They hired private investigators, and Holmes was questioned several times. So even though the new alcoholic treatment facility was thriving and his ho hotel was almost ready for the World's Fair opening, Holmes is starting to create plans to leave Chicago if much more pressure is put on him about the missing women. But in the meantime, he needs a secretary, because his other ones keep winding up dead. 
How inconvenient. So his former lover, Minnie, how dare they just go and die on him? So when his former lover, Minnie, contacts him, he offers her a job and a place to live. Minnie came from money and had inherited a small fortune. So Holmes asked her to marry him. All the eye rolls. Yep, that's what I did. (laughs) They actually do get married. Sort of. There was no paperwork filed. Since he was actually still married to Marta, or Murda, Murda, sorry. Mm-hmm. Once they are married, Holmes gets her to sign over her fortune to one of his aliases. Nice. <laughs> yeah. God, he's busy. That must be exhausting. I know. Like, I just, how do you have the time to deal with all those women and schemes and keep it all straight? And No kidding. Ugh. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. Holmes's hotel is ready for occupants of the fair come opening day, but really only allowed female guests, claiming no vacancy if men wanted to stay there, even if there was, in fact, many rooms open. Minnie and Holmes move out of the hotel to a small rental a couple blocks away, stating that it was a better place to raise a family, and Minnie's jealousy of the female guests was getting out of hand. But really, with Minnie out of the hotel, it left Holmes free to pursue his extracurricular activities away from her prying eyes. It's unclear exactly how many of his hotel guests fell victim to Holmes's homicidal tendencies, but it is rumored that he murdered hundreds of people during the run of the World's Fair. He would use a combination of gas pumped into their bedrooms or his vault, where his victims would either suffocate or starve to death, or by using chloroform. He would then dispose of the bodies by cremating them in his kiln, by dissolving um, dismembered pieces in pits of quicklime, or by selling the skeletons. He preferred to be near his victims as they died as opposed to being face-to-face. He got off on the sounds coming out of his vaults as his victim died, or hearing their breath leave their body with chloroform. And his use of multiple disposal methods likely kept the suspicion off of him. Minnie's sister, Anna, was very suspicious of her sister's new husband. So Holmes invited her out to visit and see the World's Fair. Once she arrived, she is charmed by Holmes's affection to her sister, and she relaxes. He takes her on a tour of the city, including the Union Stockyards, where they watched three pigs be slaughtered, and of course, the fair. You know, always on a tour. Just <laughs> yeah. let's, let's go watch some, you know, pigs get turned into bacon. Sounds yeah. like a good time. <laughs> it's really not that great to watch. <laughs> no, it's, it's not. <laughs> and she's supposed to be a lady. Like, don't take her there. <laughs> Sorry, that's funny because <laughs> I'm just thinking of me because, you know, obviously I've, I've experienced that before and like, well, I'm definitely not a lady. What did Wiley call me earlier? He called me a, I think he called me a muley, a muley girl or something like that. And I was like, what does that mean? He was watching Beverly Hillbillies and apparently muley girl, they mean stubborn, stubborn like a mule. <laughs> I was like, oh shit. Ah, that definitely describes me. I'm not a lady. I'm a yeah. muley girl. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. At Holmes's urging, Anna decides to stay for the summer. Holmes plans a new scheme, telling Anna and Minnie that the three of them are going to travel to Europe together. And the girls let their parents in Texas know of their travel plans so they don't worry about them. Well, surprise, surprise. Holmes never had any intention of taking them to Europe. He instead locked Anna in his vault filled it with gas, and listened to her die. And Minnie was never seen after this, but it is uncertain which method Holmes used to murder her. Holmes, now in need of money, decides to set fire to the top of his building and files an insurance claim. But the insurance company investigator discovers all of Holmes's bad debts. He then informs all of the businessmen that had outstanding debts from Holmes, and the group hires a lawyer and set up a meeting with him. Now, Holmes had no idea that all the people he owed money to would be in that meeting. And he was left panicking and scrambling and could not charm his way out of his debts this time. He decided that now is the time to leave Chicago. He flees with his new girlfriend, Georgiana Yoke, to Texas to take over the property that Minnie had owned. Once there, he starts planning to build a Texas version of his murder castle. Holmes's next brilliant scheme 
was created with Benjamin Pietzel, his guy, his worker friend that was the only one that went through everything. They decided that they will fake Pietzel's death, and then his wife would collect $10,000 in life insurance payouts. And then her and Holmes would then split the money. But Holmes couldn't find a body that met the description of Pietzel. And side note, I don't even want to know where he was looking for said body. But <laughs> No kidding. That's what I was thinking. Right? <laughs> like, oh, my inventory of bodies doesn't match what I need. How Right? <laughs> I need a man this time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. God, I wish I killed men sometimes just to have them in my inventory. Right? Um, but Pizzo, they said he was an inventor named B.F. Perry who had been killed and disfigured in a lab explosion. So instead of finding a body, Holmes murdered his only real friend by knocking him out with chloroform and then setting his body on fire. Dude. It's awful. Right? <laughs> I know. He collected the insurance payout and told Carrie Pietzel, Benjamin's wife, that her husband was in hiding. He manipulated her into letting him take three of their five children to visit their father in London, Ontario. He paid for her to travel along with the two other children, but they were never actually seen traveling together. Carrie was usually a couple of weeks behind Holmes and Georgiana. And Georgiana had no idea that the three children were traveling with them. Holmes managed to keep everyone separate as they traveled across the northern states in Canada. While Carrie Pietzel thought her children were safe with their father, the truth was the two girls, Alice and Nellie, and this is a little rough, so sorry, warning, they had been stuffed into a trunk, the trunk was filled with gas, and they asphyxiated and died. They were then buried nude in the cellar of Holmes's rental house in Toronto. And Pietzel's son, Howard, was murdered, dismembered, and burnt in the fireplace in a rental house in Indianapolis. In June of 1895, the insurance company, um, the Fidelity Mutual Life Association, was suspicious of Holmes after the autopsy that was performed on Pietzel suggested foul play. So they hired Pinkerton detectives to track down Holmes. The Pinkertons found him in Boston, and he was arrested. And they were able to detain him on a previous warrant for horse theft while they pieced together all the parts of his story. Nice. I love that that was right? horse theft that brought him down. <laughs> right? It's always some sort of like vehicular. I like I think I said this in the beginning of our podcast is don't do stupid shit that's going to get you caught. Like speeding, burnt out taillights, horse theft. Like, come on. <laughs> right? It always comes down to those things and those are the things that catch you. So. Exactly. So... <laughs> FYI. <laughs> right? Don't do that. Uh, detective Frank Geyer, a Philadelphia police detective, is assigned to Holmes's case and to track down the missing Pietzel children. Geyer uses letters that Alice and Nellie wrote to their mother to track their whereabouts. The search takes him across the Midwest, and eventually he finds the bodies of the Pietzel girls in Toronto. Their mother is brought in to identify her children, and that just makes my heart hurt. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure where she was at at the time, but she would have had to travel to get there to identify her children, yeah. which sounds awful. Mm -hmm. And investigators discovered the horrors that were left behind at the murder castle as well, but there was nothing there which could have convicted Holmes of anything. In October of 1895, Holmes was put on trial for the murder of Benjamin Pietzel. He was found guilty and sentenced to death. Following his conviction, he confessed to 27 murders in Chicago, Indianapolis, and Toronto. But some of the people he said he killed turned out to be alive and well, so it appears that Holmes was a liar right until the very end. On the day of his execution, Holmes was calm and showed no signs of fear or anxiety. But prior to his execution, he asked that his coffin be encased in cement and buried 10 feet deep because he was afraid that grave robbers would steal his body and use it for dissections, which I think is so interesting that he was so afraid of exactly what he had done to his victims. No kidding. What? I don't know. What an asshat, right? as, as Michelle right? would say. <laughs> right? Um, Holmes was executed by hanging on May 7th, 1896. His neck did not snap immediately. Instead, he strangled to death slowly. 
he was pronounced dead 20 minutes after the trap was sprung. A little bit of karmic justice, maybe, since asphyxiation was his jam. Damn, that's awesome. (laughs) Sorry, that sounds terrible. But yeah, karma. Right? The murder castle was gutted by fire in August of 1895, which appeared to be set by arsonists. The shell of the building remained standing until it was torn down in 1938. The site of the building is now the home of the Inglewood United States Postal Service. I wish that building was still standing. I would love to love to oh, explore I, that. So interesting, right? Yeah. In 2017, so like, what, three well, years ago? Yeah. Yeah. There were rumors that Holmes had, in fact, not been executed, that he had somehow escaped and had someone else hang in his place. His body was exhumed for testing. Because his coffin was encased in cement, his body didn't decompose normally, and so his clothes and his mustache were perfectly preserved. Wow. That's incredible. Right? Testing in dental records proved that it was, in fact, H.H. Holmes, and he has since been reburied. And again, so interesting that the thing he was most afraid of, being dug up and having medical tests done on him, 122 years later is exactly what happened to him. Damn, I love that. This right? is the best. <laughs> I know. Um, so obviously, if you've read the book, you know that I got some information from elsewhere. So my references outside of Devil in the White City were Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Biography.com, and CliffsNotes.com. Very well done, Michelle. <laughs> it was good? I did. Okay. Honestly, that's the best story of H.H. H. Holmes that I've heard because... Guys, I dipped out of this one. I'm sorry. <laughs> I really <laughs> struggled getting through the book because I just, I could not retain any information. Honestly, I felt like I didn't learn a single thing. It was really thing. hard to retain information. I didn't learn a single thing about H.H. Holmes. So then I was little, I was pretty disappointed. So then I tried a documentary same. It just felt so dry. I could not get through it. And I tried guys, I tried to like dig into it and I I just couldn't. And Michelle here is great. And she just, she just did it. She did all the research and that I could follow. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I was, I was really happy with like, I, I feel like I had like my board of all the stuff, you know, like my red lines going places and like absolutely connecting all the women and the wives and the, you know, whatever. But by the end of it, I was like, this actually doesn't sound too bad. So that's fantastic. And that's probably one of the reasons why, I mean, I mean, the devil in the white city, it's, we'll talk about it. But one of the reasons is because there's so many like names involved not just with the White City um, story, but with H.H. Holmes himself, with the girlfriends Mm -hmm. and the people he's dealing with. Like, there's just so many names and things changed so quickly that it was really hard Mm -hmm. to follow along. So I think he did a good job. Yes. Thank you. Making sure that all tied together. Yes. It's like, okay, this, you should see my notes. My notebook is crazy. But um, yeah, the book itself, it was... This is the first book that you and I have read that we did not love. Yes. Usually we, Which I, we fall in love with books, we fangirl, and it, like we obsess over them. And it, this was not the case, honestly. No. And I think it, there was, there's a lot of imagery and stuff that's put into building of the White City and like all of the people and those dynamics on that side of the story that H.H. H. Holmes kind of gets lost in amongst the architecture and the building of the world's first Ferris wheel and, you know, what's his face, Burnham, who's the architect that led everything. And it's, everything got really muddled and it was frustrating Mm -hmm. from a true crime book standpoint. As far as the book goes, like if I, I think if I wasn't reading it to do this and I had all the time in the world and all the patience and, could like focus on just the book itself. It tells a beautiful story. Like, and it's how they work H.H. Holmes into the, like, the building of the white city and stuff. It is quite interesting, but it just got lost. Mm-hmm. And when certain- you're trying to, trying to find him in there. 
Yes, I certainly learned more about Ferris wheels than I did about murder. So for me, that's not yeah. exactly what I was looking for, but I can't say that it's, it's a bad book or that, you know, Eric Larson isn't a good writer. Like he certainly is like, you can tell he is a good writer. I just the don't think he's won awards. Right? He, exactly. I think it's, it, I mean, it's a classic book, but it's just not the style that I think that we like. And it's just not the content that we were looking for. So we can't fault him for right. that. That's us no. choosing this book when there's other H.H. Holmes books to choose from. Right. And we chose this book because, um, I chose this book actually, um, because it's on every must read true crime book list. It's, I right? consider it's, it a classic. Like I never read it before, but to me, a classic true crime book would be this book. I mean, it's not even that old, right. but to me, it's a classic. Right. And it's telling a classic story, America's first serial killer, right? It should be like, I, I had really high expectations and I was kind of let down a little bit. One of my other things that I was really frustrated about when I got to the end and I was trying to piece together the ending and figure it all out, the ending of the book didn't necessarily line up with the ending of his story. And I was like, what is happening? Like, this is a true crime book, is it not? It's in a class called creative nonfiction, which I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah. So all of the lines are, can be a little blurred. Right. For timelines and whatnot. Names, you know, all of those things. Dates, those are all accurate. Just how, how they happen. Right. And I was a I've, little fuzzy. I mean, well, one of the things I did in preparation for this episode, even though I did nothing to do with actually getting this episode ready. Um, I went on a virtual tour on Facebook and it was all about H.H. Um, H. Holmes and just the area of Chicago and that kind of stuff. So it was on Facebook and I think they're still available to go on. But mm-hmm. so I did that and the guy that's the tour guide, he, he seemed great. I really liked him and his personality. He wrote a book. I should have written this down so I could give him a shout out. But he wrote a book about H.H. Holmes as well. And I think that would have probably been a better reference. But he said uh, his comments on The Devil in the White City is, if you're looking for a history, like White City, World Fair book, this is the book. Like this is 100% the best information you can find on it. However, the H.H. Holmes side of things, it's a little bit, you know, use some creativity with it. It's not 100% Mm -hmm. true. So you have to take it, like the information there with a grain of salt. So. Mm-hmm. That's, that's how I see that. <laughs> yes. Hence all of the other references as well as the book that we read. So yes. And uh, I figured that while I was reading and I wanted, wanted to see if I could figure out who was actually murdered when I was thinking this, but it was when um, one of the women were in one of the rooms that was completely sealed off. I think it was Anna in the vault. Anna in the vault. Yeah. So when Anna was in the vault in the book, he was talking about, um, her reaction, what she was thinking at the time, like, oh, you know, it must have been a mistake. He'll come back. And then she was pounding on the door. Mm-hmm. She felt kind of embarrassed about being stuck in there um, and all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So it was like, okay, but she died. So how do mm-hmm. you know? Like, it was very detailed about what she was experiencing and what she was mm-hmm. thinking, which, yeah, that sounds yeah. great when you're telling a story, but this is a true crime story. So you don't, know the feelings of the person you can assume them certainly but i don't think it's really appropriate to put them in there like that i don't know that's no my opinion yeah yes and there was many messages between me and tara back and forth i'm like oh my god this book ah it hurts me but i think (laughs) the story is it's actually quite interesting like all of the like i have no idea how he kept everything straight oh i know that the detail and the information that is in this book, I don't know how that possibly survived for that long for this book to be written. Like the well, name- he did write a he wrote a memoir while he was in prison, um, waiting for investigators and stuff. He started writing his memoir. True, but the details on like the World Fair and that kind of stuff, just like right. all of the people's names, what they did, what they ate for supper, like it insane detail like honestly a little bit too much for me it was very wordy but like incredibly impressed of how all those details survived after over 100 years (laughs) like crazy right 122 years and we're talking about it still so yeah exactly very interesting um would you recommend this book 
I guess it depends on who it would be to somebody like, like mm-hmm. I've told Michelle in the past, my brother and my dad, they're so fantastic with history. They can look at a picture of a battlefield and they can tell you where it happened and what year it was. They're just have that kind of mindset. So I think somebody that's more history oriented, I think they would enjoy this book. If you're specifically mm-hmm. looking for true crime like me, no, I mm-hmm. would not recommend the book for a more true crime person. Yes. That's my dad's the exact same way. Um, literally yesterday we were sitting visiting and he was like, well, oh, it's the anniversary of D-Day. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my, my brain just does not work like that. I can't remember no. all the, I don't know, all the dates and history and all that kind of stuff. I mean, serial killer stuff, true crime things. Yeah. Sure. I can remember that Bring stuff. <laughs> Uh, but anything else doesn't really seem to stick with me too much. No. And even that stuff, like, I can tell you, like, Ted Bundy was active in the 70s. I can't tell you, like... Charles Manson, August of 1969. Like, vague, vague details. Vague, (laughs) but not the day that, you know, whatever, somebody went missing or they were arrested or whatever. Yes. I love that there's people's brains that can remember those things because mine just does not work that way. Yeah, no, exactly. And also the style of writing, it seemed very much um, like an English professor or somebody, like somebody that has that appreciation for novels. I think they would enjoy that style of writing. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems really prestigious too, right? Like that's what I, from the first chapter, I was like, okay, all right. We're wearing our fancy pants today. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. It just, yeah, it does seem like a really old timey book, but it wasn't written that long ago. It was what, 2007 no. or something like that? I want to yeah, say. I, sorry, I don't actually I remember it. at all, but. I have it sitting in front of me here. <laughs> As I just say, I'm not good at dates. I don't remember any dates ever, but I'm going to just take a wild guess and say that this happened in 2007. <laughs> 2003. Okay. Well, I wasn't still. I wasn't too far off. Still, it was in the two thousands, right? So yeah, it like I thought it would have been way, way before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who likes a good literary book, I would recommend it to. It tells a beautiful story. It paints a wonderful picture. There's a lot of stuff in there, though. So yes. for me, I needed help to filter through the stuff. Yes. But. Yep. Mm-hmm. I well, <laughs> I mean, I didn't read the book at all to be honest i listened to it all on an audiobook but that's not 100 percent my fault i literally just got my book in the mail less than a week ago thank <laughs> so, you covid19 yeah so i didn't really have a choice i couldn't really read it but i think i would have really struggled if i had to read it because even with the audiobook i was tuning out constantly so i really had to try mm-hmm. remind myself to be mindful and to stay on it and try to focus yeah still i was I was struggling, not going to lie. Yeah, there were times. Yeah. I wrote part one for Michelle. <laughs> I sent her. <laughs> you think I can find that? I think it was pretty funny. I think you could find it, maybe. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. So this is what I sent Michelle <laughs> last week. I said, I'm halfway through White City, so I wrote part one. There's a really big, important fair that's going to happen in Chicago. There are many people involved that think they're also pretty important. They spend more time discussing building the buildings than building the buildings. There's also a dude named H.H. Holmes. He seems shady. I think he's up to something. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of The Devil in the White City. Join us next week, and we might even talk about murder. One thing is for sure, we will be having more riveting discussions about buildings. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little that's a little shady, but that's those are my feelings when I was halfway through the book. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why we decided to do it in one part instead of splitting it up into two because mm-hmm. I was able to do it all in one part and Yeah, and I hope get that, it done. Like I think you did a great job, so I hope other people can mm-hmm. follow it along easily because I I didn't find a lot of other sources that put it together simply and, and I don't know easy to follow along that's all I really wanted yeah so. that's what I wanted to hopefully I, I was aiming for yeah well I think you did a, a great job excellent well I think I'm ready for some fluff and stuff you absolutely I'm always here for the fluff and stuff 
<laughs> this is why we're here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we just want to chat. This is the only time we get to actually talk. So, you know, we just yeah. along for the ride. Right. It's fine. Um, so it's raining again. And it's what, three episodes in a row now that we're like, it's raining. Well, I was actually going to say every single episode, pretty much we've talked about the weather. So it really shows that we're true Albertans because literally that's, it's a topic of conversation constantly. So yeah, it is. And yeah, it, we're a small oh. town like Albertans. So, and we work with farmers. farmers and like, we're all affected by the weather. So exactly. Hey, you don't know what to say. Just be like, Hey, that weather out there and people will just go off. How, how much rain did you get? Right. <laughs> Everybody knows how much rain, rain they got. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's raining again and my kids and I, watch some rainy day movies today. So I was like, well, what is your favorite rainy day movie? Great question. I have two <laughs> answers for this. Uh, okay. First one that popped in my head was Super Troopers. Oh, Love so it. good. Love Classic. Super Troopers. I've watched it like a hundred times. I just have such a vivid memory of just while I was in, I think, middle school, high school, whatever. That was my go-to movie. I'd make a deep dish pizza and just watch some Super Troopers. All the time. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) My husband has a t-shirt that's the Vermont Highway Patrol from Super Troopers and I just whipped it out of my closet. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) The bonuses of living life in the closet. Right? When he ordered this, because he got this when it came, when Super Troopers 2 came out, um, it came with a, like a Farva fake mustache and some like patches for your jacket and stickers and oh my God, it's hilarious. That's fantastic. (laughs) Also reminds me that I, I used to have cats uh, that were all named after Super Troopers. So I had, I had Farva, um, Ram. I had two black cats. They were Ram and Rod. Um, and then the other one was Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) You love it. Yeah. So those were those are my cat names. My other one would definitely be Jurassic Park. Like, oh, rainy so day to me. Just like the first Jurassic Park movie when it's mm-hmm. pouring rain. Pouring. And they're and the in the vehicle. Move, and the cup with like, the, oh, the, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The and vibration from the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the guy, you know, running to the bathroom and then <laughs> it getting blown away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. That just. I love Jurassic Park. That just warms your heart. Yes. It does. It does. I'm just like all these warm and fuzzy feelings. And <laughs> I love it. Uh, it. Yeah, it's great. What are your favorite I, rainy day movies? Well, I busted out one that I've been like waiting for today because I was like, I gotta wait for my kids to be a little older. My kids are three and five, so I, I was pushing it a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. But we watched The Labyrinth today. Oh, yes. I and saw that. It yeah. made me so happy. Nice. And they weren't freaked out by it. They were just like, okay, cool. And my daughter was really excited that the, the main character's name is Sarah, which is my daughter's name. So she's like, Very Sarah nice. saves the day. And I was like, well, and she meets David Bowie. Come on. Uh, <laughs> priorities <laughs> right uh so we did yeah we, that's one of my faves and one of my other favorites is and you're gonna laugh at me because it's such a girly movie and it's oh, like no. it's how to lose a guy in 10 days honestly i don't think i've ever seen it <laughs> really oh it's I'm just not, so fun <laughs> just not generally a girly girl kind of movie person i mean there are some i'm not usually there's I'm not usually like, either, but that one, I love that one. I'll, I'll look it up for the next rainy yeah. day. Yeah. It's because it's Kate Hudson and she's fantastic. So yeah, fair enough. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I love that you just know that <sighs> Tara's going to judge me. <laughs> Tara's going to judge me again. It's fine. It's nothing spooky, so she's not going to be into it. Right? Love it. I so. mean... I do have favorite spooky movies too, but we'll talk about those, I'm sure, another day. So. Oh, yeah. Well, we still <laughs> yeah. have to have a Michelle spooky special. Because we had right. a spooky special. So one day. Right. Got to have the Michelle one. We're just going to tell my spooky stories and freak myself out again. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what we need. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, make sure to answer our questions and let us know what you thought about the episode. You can email us at murderandmerlot at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram at murderandmerlotpodcast. 
Facebook at Murder and Merlot Podcast and Twitter at Murder and Merlot One. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. We would love if you subscribed, and if you don't, you're dead to me. And also, I did start a YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, no big promises. I'm not a <laughs> videographer, anything of the sort, and we don't record the video aspect of our podcast, but I did put it on YouTube because there are some people that like to mm -hmm. listen on YouTube such as my dad. And so mm -hmm. I put, uh, I'll just slowly be releasing our episodes on there. I just have our first episode up right now and it just has kind of a slideshow of pictures. So if you're into that, you can certainly check out that as well. Maybe mm -hmm. in the future, we might do more with that page, but no big promises. And uh, also have more plans for TikTok, but you know, that also no big promises, but I, I am working on some stuff there too. So love it. That's excellent. Mm -hmm. um, what's our handle on YouTube? Great question. Um, I think it's, it's just Murder and Merlot podcast. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And um, should we announce our next book? Books. Yeah. We're Books. doing two. So excited. Well, I, I said I couldn't get Waco out of my head. So yeah, we're going to do it. You might as well tell them. So we're going to cover Waco, a survivor story by David Thibodeau. And Stalling for Time, My Life as a Hostage Negotiator by Gary Nosner. And yeah, I'm so excited for these. Uh, I think we might focus a little bit more for reference for the episode with Stalling for Time, but we're definitely going to have uh, the survivor story as well for reference because we really want to get mm -hmm. both sides of the story for our episode. Mm -hmm. So you can certainly mm -hmm. just choose one or the other to read if you want to read along. Uh, but yeah, we're going we're gonna to read both and hopefully have a great couple episodes for you guys. Yes. And it's, we're probably going to release a couple minis in between here, um, when, in between when we release our Waco episodes, just so we've got time to read and write. Yeah. As we're doing two books, it might be a little bit longer. And we did H.H. Helms in one episode, so... Exactly. Yeah. When we first intended to do two episodes. So yeah, things are mm -hmm. changing up a little bit, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we want to do a good job on those because uh, it's such a fascinating case. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that the TV series has made the books more popular because I went to go buy us the books and you can't find a copy of Waco like a hard copy right now. They are back ordered. They're not in stores. They're not online. Like Amazon doesn't have them. So we're going to do the audiobook for that one. And then I've got the Stalling for Time should be here next week. Nice. Looking forward to it. Yeah. You can mm -hmm. certainly get both of them on Audible I've seen. So if you hmm. want to listen to that rather than read, that's, that's totally fine. That's what I usually do anyways. <laughs> yes. Awesome. All right. Remember to drink wine, guys, because it's not good to keep things bottled up. Bye. Bye.